I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Brian Sack. Brian is a principal at TLV Partners, one of the most respected VC firms in Israel, where he specializes in enterprise software, including a focus on cybersecurity. Before TLV, Brian worked at SquarePeg Capital, and before that, he worked in financial advisory in Australia. In this episode, we discuss the Israeli startup ecosystem and compare and contrast it with the US and other global regions. Given the number of Israeli founders I interview on the show, I thought it would be enlightening to dive deeper into this critical cybersecurity innovation hotbed. Brian did not disappoint, so I hope you all enjoy. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Kyle. Excited to be here. So tell me a little bit more about your background actually getting into VC, because you were in Australia, you were working at Grant Thornton doing some financial advisory services. And then according to your LinkedIn, at least, you just jumped straight into TLV in Israel, into the venture ecosystem, which is no small jump moving countries and continents and job roles. I mean, how did this all come together? Yeah, so um, um, I was actually born in South Africa. I uh, grew up in Australia, and and like uh, a lot of people in my community, we I found myself in a in a deep financial services role, working on some hardcore financial stuff, which was great. It was great for the skills, but it definitely lacked the energy and creativity I was seeking. Um, and at the time, I was sort of searching around for what might be more suitable as a career for me. And I came across the world of, of venture capital in Australia. It was pretty nascent. There wasn't much going on, um, but I was luckily. Luckily enough, um, I was introduced to um, a VC there on the ground called SquarePaid Capital, and there was an opportunity to to join their Israel office, um, um, which is based on in Rothschild in the center of Tel Aviv. And so I spent some time in Israel as a kid and um, had a bunch of friends here, could speak the language a little bit, and so um, jumped across to, to the Israel office uh, to join SquarePaid and, and spent a bunch of time um, working in the SquarePeg office, working on Israeli deals. Uh, and then I was really lucky to have the opportunity to meet with Rona Segev and Eitan Beck, the founders of TLB Partners. And the timing was great because they just raised um, Fund One um, and um, it was an opportunity to get involved in the fund really, really early on. And so jumped across to TLB and have now been here for uh, seven and a half years. You mentioned the language piece, and this actually isn't something I've, I've spent too much time talking about. In Israel, I had always assumed that English was kind of the language of business. How much is that actually the case? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and it really depends on the organization. I would say English is the main language of business, number one, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of expats living and working in Israel. Um, but I think that um, the value of speaking Hebrew is somewhat underrated, um, and I always encourage uh, people who move to Israel to, to really double down and focus on, on learning Hebrew for that very reason. Uh, there's just you know a cultural thing where you can speak with your fellow work colleagues in Hebrew in their natural language, or as a VC, hear them pitch in their natural language, the language that they feel most comfortable expressing themselves. And we're talking about pretty complex ideas, sometimes ideas that haven't necessarily been developed you know, fully. And, and so for them to be as comfortable as possible, I think Hebrew is, a, is, is really, really important as an as a immigrant into Israel. So I would say that still most businesses conducted in English, but I think those you know, back-of-the-room conversations, the water-cooler conversations, um, they're often done in Hebrew. Hmm. So let's go back to, to you joining SquarePeg over in Israel. You are getting settled in Israel, and a big part then is kind of growing your deal flow, the different relationships that you have with all these various startups. But 
at this point, you don't have a background in the IDF like most Israeli founders, and you don't have a background in startups, which is kind of a common um, idea or notion that in order to be successful as a VC, you need to have experienced that firsthand. So what was what was your impression of kind of coming from that, let's say, non-traditional background in this sense and, and how you were able to kind of connect with some of these different founders or at least convince them of your value and, and why your background presented something unique? Yeah, it, I would say it was an advantage and a disadvantage coming from the background that I that I came from. Um, I think I'll start with the, the disadvantage. The first disadvantage was that I couldn't at the time when I first moved to Israel um, speak Hebrew very well. Like I, I wouldn't have wanted to conduct business meetings in Hebrew. Um, but um, I, you know, I worked on that and I was really lucky. Actually, when I joined TLB Partners, one of the partners said, you, you've got to work on your Hebrew. And uh, from now on, we're only going to do meetings in Hebrew. And from now on, whenever you speak to me, do that in Hebrew. And that was sort of a forcing function to get me to, to really improve my Hebrew. And, and, I, and I, I, you know, thank him all the time for that because it's, it's a real asset. Um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of my network at the time, you're right, it was, it was limited. Um, and at the same time, joining TLB Partners, we were a new fund. So to an extent, we were a startup. And so we didn't have the inbound deal flow that might be experienced at a very established firm. Um, what we decided as a firm and what I decided as an individual is that we were just going to work a lot harder than everyone else out there in order to get in front of every potentially interesting uh, investment in the ecosystem. Um, and what that did, I think, from the really early days was foster this type of culture at TLB um, of, of like this hunting mentality. That's how I like to describe it to the more to the more junior employees, the newer employees, that uh, we want to be in front of every strong entrepreneur in the ecosystem that you know can have a potential, have the opportunity to take a look at that deal. And if we miss something, um, we're really upset about it. Like, yeah, you know, we should be really upset about it from the partner level to the junior level. Um, everyone should be really frustrated and, and try to figure out why we why we didn't see them. Um, and so just back to back to your question, I think um, the way I overcame sort of the, the cultural difference being new or the ground was just to, to work a lot harder to make sure we were in front of absolutely everyone um, that we thought could be a relevant entrepreneur for, for the fund. And deal flow and, and the kind of hunt for deal flow is a problem that's obviously faced in, in any VC ecosystem, any part of the world. Is there anything that stuck out to you as particularly unique in Israel in terms of how you go about it other than the classic, just let's make sure that we're plugged into the right accelerators and checking the latest pitch book reports and stuff like that? Yeah, the, we did all of those things, sort of like the low-hanging fruit. Um, I think what we also did really early on was build some internal technology tools that helped us identify entrepreneurs um, starting things. Um, and so so that gave us the edge initially. I think even, even today, those types of tools are becoming commoditized. I think a lot of VCs have sort of figured that out and, and are, you know, scraping LinkedIn and looking at people changing their statuses and things like that. Um, we were doing that really well seven or eight years ago, and we've continued to, to advance them. And, and, and we continue to think of new creative techniques in order to source interesting deals. Um, and, you know, I think it's changed to an extent, whereas we're still trying to uh, push forward this hunter mentality. Today, we're a way more established brand in the Israeli ecosystem. So now our inbound deal flow has grown significantly because of the entrepreneurs who we've invested in talking to their friends and, and telling their friends, well, you should meet with TLB or even um, employees of companies that we've invested in, in the past. We're now seeing that cycle. So those employees are now coming to us with, with ideas, which is, which is really interesting, um, which doesn't mean we can take our foot off the gas when it comes to 
outbound sourcing and, and, and looking for new deals, but um, it is to an extent easier um, from the deal flow front now that we're very established. So let's talk about TLV a little bit further then. A more generalist fund and an ecosystem that I understand is largely more vertical specific. There's a lot of cyber focused VC funds in Israel and obviously just so much room within the cyber ecosystem for investment that you can have funds and firms that are focused on that. How has that influenced your strategy and what you choose to invest in and, and kind of how you grow that presence in these different verticals? Yeah, sure. So, so I'll tell you a little bit about TLV first. So um, founded uh, eight years ago by, by Ron Segev and Eitan Beck. Um, today, we're managing just over a billion dollars across five early stage funds. We actually recently announced our fifth early stage fund, uh, which is a $250 million vehicle. Uh, we're, we're primarily focused on the early stage. Um, so more often than not, we're first money into companies or leading the seed round. Um, we've done as well the occasional A round as well, which, is, which has been Interesting to see sort of later, you know, investing in sort of slightly later stage companies. Um, but I would say majority of our work goes in goes into the early stage, like the, the pre-seed or seed um, stage deals. Um, you said it perfectly. We're we're a generalist fund. We we like to invest in you know almost anything. We like to look at lots and lots of different verticals. We have a really strong portfolio of enterprise software companies within which I include cyber. We have a strong fintech portfolio, which one of my colleagues has, has led really well and and builds a really, really strong portfolio. We also have a strong bucket of companies in the healthcare and pharmaceutical spaces, so, so pretty diversified. Um, what I would say when it comes to cyber um, is that we uh, feel very strongly about doing cyber investments in Israel um, because, of, because of the talents and because of the graduates of all of the various army units in Israel. Um, but we actually think being a generous, generalist fund uh, like we are, gives us an advantage when we're looking at cyber deals. And and the reason I say that is because almost always our cyber investment strategy is informed by the work that we do in other areas. Um, and I'll give you a great example of that. Uh, we were the first investors in a company called Aqua Security. Um, and initially they were doing container security. We didn't go out into the market to look for a container security company in 2015. At the time, people had barely heard of containers at most CISOs wouldn't have had any idea what a container or Docker, Docker was. Um, but um, we had identified this trend because, you know, we were looking at various developer tools that were, you know, in the ecosystem of Docker and, and, and the ecosystem of containers um, and then thought to ourselves, well, um, is this emerging technology infrastructure secure? And is there an opportunity to invest in a security solution um, in that space? And, and that's what sort of led us to the investment thesis behind Aqua. Very similar situation was with a company called PureSec, which was acquired by Palo Alto Networks. They were in the serverless security space. Again, we didn't go out looking for a serverless security startup. There were probably only you know a handful of developers in Israel using serverless technology. Um, but because of the work that we were doing in, in other verticals, it helped inform um, our, our cyber investments. Um, and what I think that leads to uh, is that where the type of if you look at our security portfolio, it'll look very different from the vertically focused security funds. Um, we won't do the traditional security investments. Most of our investments will be within categories that are very, very, very early um, and, and often will be the first investment within that category. Um, so, so last example from my end um, is that we led the, uh, the seed round in a company called Laminar, which was, was, was acquired. It was just announced a couple of days ago by, by Rubrik. Um, and they're in the DSPM space, the sort of the cloud data security space. Um, 
And that was, they were the first company in that category. They were the ones who coined um, the category. Um, and, and that would probably be like the, the, the typical example of the type of cyber deal that TLB would do. So help me unpack this a little bit more in terms of thinking about the timing for investing in one of these areas, right? Because I think the, the story that you just told makes a ton of sense in terms of seeing a, an IT uh, vertical that's developing and then recognizing that at some point this is going to need security controls in place. I think AI is kind of a, a, an obvious, more recent example that you can point to in the last year and say, hey, this is developing and security is going to be needed here at some point. How do you think about the timing in the sense of being too early because of because cyber is such a lagging, not indicator, but um, just kind of process and requirement behind the actual operational capabilities. Ultimately, it's not until a couple years into the adoption of these technologies that cyber becomes a priority for these different CISOs and, and the folks who want to adopt and use these tools. How do you think about that? Yeah, so the way that we think about it is that we... Um, when we invest, we have to believe that within somewhere between a year to two years, the early adopters will start to really adopt these new technology infrastructure trends. Um, and by that time, you know, you know, it'll take the company about a year to 18 months to build their product or their initial product. And by that time, there will be a small group of companies who will require some sort of security solution um, to secure the new type of technology or the new infrastructure technology that they that they started to use. Um, so we, we like to think about it like that. So with, if within a year and a half, there'll likely be some early adopters out there who would be willing to um, to firstly adopt this technology, but then also secure it. So that, that's probably the timing that we're, we're looking to identify. Um, and, and the way that we we try to assess that is we we have a group of companies in mind where we know that this these are the type of companies that are early adopters and we're constantly in contact with those companies. And we're constantly asking various people within within those companies and within management, you know, how quickly do you expect the this, this experiment that you're doing with these new technologies to, to reach a production environment? And we try to track that and, and assess whether it, you know it's too early in the market or, or potentially even too too late in the market as well. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about just the cybersecurity market more broadly. You mentioned that hey, we try to do these these kind of segments of deals that are much earlier, category leaders, founding new categories. You also talked about how obviously the Israeli cyber ecosystem has a, a strong kind of defense lens to it, just given all these folks are coming out of the IDF and Unit 8200. What do you think about kind of the, the types of companies in Israel specifically that are the most let's say, advanced cyber capabilities compared to the rest of the world. So what does Israel excel in in terms of types of cyber companies as opposed to the US or Australia, where you're maybe more familiar? Yeah, Israelis um, are amazing at building tech. Um, they're, they're some of the best uh, technology entrepreneurs in the world. Um, their R&D teams are usually you know, some of the strongest in the world. And, and so they're really great at building tech. There, there is no tech challenge that I don't think um, Israeli cyber team, would, you know, would be able to overcome, particularly the really, really strong ones. Um, I, I, so I think that from a technology point of view, most of the companies that are coming out of Israel are coming out, coming out with not, you know, not always, but often with superior technology. I think the challenges that they face are more on the go-to-market side of things, where you know, they're, they're from, you know, from a distance perspective, they're further away from their customers um, culturally. Uh, you know, 
language uh, and and various other things. So, so, so there are some gaps there that we as a fund and as an ecosystem, by the way, is, is maturing. We as a fund try to try to help with um, with trying to you know try trying to um, fulfill that gap. Um, but I would say that the the technology uh, that comes out of Israel is often superior from what comes out of um, other other startup ecosystems. So one of the things that that's jumped out to me from seeing a lot of these different companies' tools over the years is Israeli companies seem to always have a much sharper UI than American startups in the cyber ecosystem. Do you know, is this something that is just kind of conventional wisdom within the Israeli ecosystem that, hey, you have to have uh, a good looking web application? Or is that more a, a function of some other factors? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I've noticed the same thing. I've seen some pretty bad UIs over the years. Um, but um, what I would say as, as a general comment is that um, the ecosystem in Israel has really matured over the last 20 to 30 years. Even in the last seven and a half years that I've been here, I've noticed there's significant um, signs of maturity. Um, and and what, what tends to happen is, you know, initially employees 20 to 30 years ago would work for small companies. Those companies would be acquired by larger Often U.S. Big, you know, big Fortune 500 companies, they would then get a bunch of experience on on how to really go to market, how to really build products at scale, how to really sell at scale, um, and eventually, after a couple of years gaining that experience, so that talent then retrickles down into the startup ecosystem, either by starting their own company or again joining an early stage company. Um, and so there are lots of elements, for example, UI or sales or marketing experience, which continues to continues to compound, continues to grow because of that natural cycle and natural maturity within the ecosystem. Interesting. So let me let me pivot us a little bit here. You'd to let the guests or the the listeners behind the curtain. Before we started talking, you mentioned that there was a pretty stark difference in terms of the culture of work in Israel compared to Australia. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more and just the the kind of changes that that presents? Yeah, sure. I think that the feeling I've got um, working in Israel compared to working in, in a country like Australia is that um, there is an underlying motivator um, in Israel that doesn't exist, or at least that, not that I know of, exists in, in any other ecosystem. Um, and I think to an extent that's driven by the fact that um, Israelis uh, still feel like, you know, we're still early in the history of the country of Israel, and to an extent the country is always um, or conti- continually um, threatened by by its enemies, by its adversaries, and so um, there's this constant motivator to to continue to establish the country. And and one and one of the ways that you know that translates into the fact that you know we need to work harder to grow the economy. We need to work harder to grow successful companies. Um, and that motivator, I think, isn't found in in many other countries in the world. It, it, it may be you know, I'm just not not familiar with it. Um, and I really feel that on the ground. I really feel that people here, um, when they're working, they do to work with a greater sense of purpose, not necessarily for their own personal success or the success of their company, but really working for the for the success of the of the country um, of the country as a, as a whole. Hmm. So maybe can you talk a little bit more about how the military or just kind of the national security interests influence these startups, even after they're out? of the military? Obviously, dual use is something that's growing across the US and, I mean, presumably Israel as well. There's a lot of these companies that are being found in Israel that when you talk about new technology, 
there's obviously a, a key application within the defense space, but there's also some that maybe strike me as as having less of a use case for back in the IDF in terms of, um, well, I don't know, just the next DSPM platform, for example, right? Um, you mentioned Laminar, but obviously there's there's additional ones that have come out of the ecosystem as well. How do you think about that that ongoing relationship again in terms of national security, what these founders decide to work on, and how that ecosystem kind of connects both of those worlds? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I'll, I'll start with the beginning. Um, so a lot of the talent that goes into the startup ecosystem, and particularly talent that goes on to work on cybersecurity companies, um, is developed within the 8200, which I'm, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and I'm sure many of your listeners are very familiar with. Now, that's a really unique experience, and, and maybe that's a key difference between other ecosystems and Israel um, in, in that these talented individuals are selected really, really early on in life. And um, when they're you know in the later stages of their of their high school, um, and instead of going into university like you would perhaps in, in the US, um, they go into the the IDF into the eighty two hundred unit, where instead of sitting through you know hours and hours of theoretical lectures around you know security and networking and and, and various different concepts, so they go straight into active duty, um, and so on a day to day basis, they're uh, defending threats and perhaps even working on 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 offensive projects and, and things like that, and so. Um, as opposed to seeing, you know, learning about theory and 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 being part of sort of the academic cyber movements, they're very much on the front line of defending against some of the most innovative cyber attacks um, and and the most sophisticated cyber attacks out there. Um, and so that learning experience then trickles down into, you know, I I leave the military, I graduate from the military. So how can we apply the learnings and you know the most sophisticated cyber attacks, the up and coming threats that we experience as part of the IDF? to the commercial world. Um, and that's how I think the majority of the startups in the cybersecurity domain get founded. Um, there is one key difference between the IDFs and outside of the IDF, um, and that is that um, up until recently, uh, I think the IDFs um, weren't users of the cloud, uh, which, is, which, is, which is really interesting. Um, I, I, I presume being a, you know, a pretty secretive organization, they would have had you know, on-prem data and their own data centers and, and things like that. Um, I think we're sort of starting to see some sort of shift towards the cloud. Um, that's the feeling. I don't, I don't have any evidence for that, but but signals of that are the fact that you know AWS opened up a region in Israel recently, uh, uh, and and you know AWS doesn't have regions in every country in the world, but they've obviously targeted Israel as a as a potential landing spot for for an AWS region. Um, and so I think that you know often often soldiers come out of the out of the military and have to rediscover you know the cloud and and what you know what does it mean you know, being cloud native and, and securing the cloud, which is some, somewhat different. Um, but at the same time, they're exposed to these threats and the most sophisticated threats so early on um, that that gives them a really big advantage when they when they do graduate the military. And what do you think as far as the kind of revolving door between the military and these different startups, right? I think this is maybe something that, that strikes me as more pronounced in the US where you have someone who serves in government and then they go and work at a defense contractor who sells back into government. I think from most of the examples of, of kind of founders I've spoken with, there's not a lot of second um, terms back in the military where you leave the military after your kind of required service or, or maybe more than that as well. But that, that first term when you're fairly young, you go work at a startup and then it continues to be kind of one way of selling back into some of those people who are uh, much more senior and kind of career military folks. Anything in particular that you see with that dynamic in terms of how those relationships are forged and kind of maintained over time? 
I, I haven't seen um, much of a revolving door like the way that you that you you described it. Um, I do know that some of the um, the top employees and the most talented employees in the startup world often consults um, for, for military units. But again, I'm not I'm not super familiar with the agreement, and I don't know how formalized those agreements are. It might just be you know very informal. Um, but yet, you know, the IDS would be a relatively small customer um, for for an Israeli cybersecurity startup uh, who have really big ambitions. So that would just be, you know, just be one customer. And so I think, you know, once they finish with the IDF and they've graduated, so they'll obviously help out with consulting and um, and helping out, you know, on, on projects if they're if they're acquired. Um, but, you know, these entrepreneurs have, have really big on have really big ambitions and, and want to go into the towards the you know, the biggest markets in the world, which is Europe and the US and the UK. Yeah, that's a great point, kind of honing in on the ambitions piece. I mean, I'm curious from from your seat, what is it that that you kind of sell entrepreneurs on in terms of your role and being able to connect them to the U.S. ecosystem? Because obviously your earlier stage, maybe part of your role is the ability to partner with some U.S. funds that then allow them to connect back in in, in their A and B rounds. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, good question. Um, I, might, I might say something a little controversial here, um, so I hope I don't get in trouble. But um one of the things, and probably the most important thing as an early stage investor um, to do uh, with your most recent investment and your early stage portfolio is, uh, in my opinion, to help them find product market fit. Um, and then from there, things sort of fall in line um, somewhat naturally, obviously, with hard work. Um, one of the things um, as a, a, an investor observing how the Israeli ecosystem has developed, um, we've noticed, is that um, companies often don't necessarily reach pure product market fit, um, and and we're concerned about that. And, and the way that I would describe as non-pure product market fit is that you're, you know, you're, you at least as an entrepreneur presume you have product market fit because you've managed to sell your your product um, to a you know a couple of customers. But when you when you look at those those customers are they're often within the very close network of the venture fund that you know re- that that led your seed round. Um, and and we're concerned about that. N- number one because you know. Um, that Rolodex of potential customers that your venture fund can introduce you to will, will run out um, and probably pretty quickly. And, and number two, more importantly, you, you don't really have product market fit. You, don't, you have a non-pure version of product market fit and you'll eventually get to a point where you'll have to realize that and your, your growth trajectory will slow down. Um, having said all of that, um, as, a, as a venture fund with you know, a large network in the US and a large network of customers in the US, we always um, introduce our Portfolio companies to, to, to a lot of different um, a lot of different people in the US who we think can help them both from future financing and and companies who can become potential customers and CISOs. Um, having said that, it's always with the caveat that you as an entrepreneur have to go figure out these things on your own and get to really pure product market fit. You have to be able to build the infrastructure that allows you to go to market independently of your venture fund um, and. Um, you know, if you're able to find that pure organic product market fit, you'll be in a much long you know, you'll be in a much better position long term as opposed to those who are benefiting themselves short term, but long term will will run into a bunch of you know different dead ends. What do you think about the argument that having those kind of anchor customers maybe it gives you more time to establish product market fit, right? Because you're building those major logos and still able to work on some of the the maybe engineering challenges and go-to-market challenges in the background while that's taking place. 
I, I, I agree with that. Um, but it comes down to the incentive of the customer. Um, and you have to really ensure that the customers that are the ones using your solution really, really early on or buying your solution early on or joining joining you, you as a design partner are are there because they have a genuine problem within their organization that they're trying to solve with your problem and not because they're part of a network or they're doing some you know, VC a favor or, or perhaps they're incentivized in other ways to do that. And, um, and, and we're seeing over and over again situations where, you know, these companies are growing really, really well, uh, but then are hitting a, a dead end early on in their, in their lifetime because they didn't initially find product market fit. And that product market fit was sort of blurred by the fact that they had five to 10 really big customers who were adopting their solutions, perhaps not even using them as actively or, or, or using them, but, you know, not really having the problem that they were going out to solve initially. You mentioned within that response, the design partners. This is something that, I mean, I mentioned the the UI trend that I've seen and, and that one clearly was was wrong largely, which is okay. Um, <laughs> the design partners is another one that I've kind of picked up on over time where I feel like Israeli companies typically prioritize this kind of design partner strategy where from very early stages of their business, they're trying to build those uh, enterprise partners that can help them throughout the the development process. Is this something where you think there's just more of a culture of that within Israel, both on the startup side in terms of prioritizing it, as well as the customer side in terms of being willing to participate in this? Yeah, I think I think this goes back to a little bit about what the Israeli ecosystem is like. Um, the Israeli ecosystem is highly, highly collaborative. Um, and, and even between your potential competitors, it's highly collaborative. It's not unusual to see you know, two CEOs of competing companies sitting at a cafe in the in the Serena market, which is sort of the epicenter of all of the startups in, in Tel Aviv, you know, sitting and drinking coffee and chatting about the challenges that they face. It's a highly collaborative ecosystem. Uh, and people are um, generally considered early adopters. Some of the bigger companies in Israel are considered early adopters and entrepreneurs. Um, one of the most important things for them to do um, as they're developing their product is get real life data, uh, you know, w- within customer um, environments. And so, um, they also may know these people from from the military. Uh, you know, they may have been their commanders, or they may have been in similar units, and so often those connections help. But um, yeah, I think that the Israeli ecosystem is, is really collaborative and, and provides a platform for early stage startups to find those design partners very, very early on. Hmm. So as we wrap up here, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the judicial reform over the last month or so. Here, what's your perspective in terms of? the impact on the ecosystem. I've heard some mixed reviews. Obviously, there's some Israeli startups that have been hesitant to keep their money within Israel as we think about Wiz and and their latest round and some other startups that allegedly have followed suit. Uh, But at the same time, there's obviously a a very, very vibrant startup ecosystem. Do you think this is something that's going to have a long-term impact on startups in Israel? And and what's your perspective on the, the broader change? Yeah. So, firstly, I'll say I, I'm not an expert when it comes to the details of the you know the, the legal changes that the the government's pushing. Um, what I will say from from my perspective, um, I am seeing an impact, and the impact that I'm seeing um, is within obviously a probably a, a smaller sample size than the entire. You know, I'm seeing the impact on the people that I work with. I'm seeing the impact on the entrepreneurs that I'm work with that I work with, um, and. Um, I'm seeing a negative impact. I'm seeing that the entrepreneurs all of a sudden feel uncomfortable. I'm seeing people that I work with are, are feeling threatened by the judicial changes that are being made by the government. Um, and that really concerns me. And the reason it concerns me is the fact that, you know, Australia is a great example of a country whose economy is 
basic is is based on its natural resources. You know, they 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 iron iron ore, they they um, mine iron ore out of the ground and, and they sell it to different countries and 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 that's a fantastic business. Israel doesn't have any natural resources. Um, the primary um, uh, industries within Israel are predicated on on talent. Um, and and I work in an industry where you know we 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 have lots and lots of really really impressive talents and. My fear is that when the t- these talented people start to feel insecure, they start to feel threatened, they start to feel at risk. So there is a risk of them them escaping, and uh, the judicial reform is is posing a risk uh, um, on on those very people. And and so that that is my that is my overall concern. Without without going into the details of the actual legal reform, I'm seeing an impact within the, the small community of people that I that I work with on a everyday basis. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about obviously just the importance of the tech ecosystem within Israel, right? Because this is certainly something that the government recognizes uh, that they need to preserve that that high tech startup development. I mean, there was even just the, also, I think in the last couple of weeks here, the new tax incentive that was passed, I think it was called the, the quote unquote new law, uh, which is confusing to try to explain that that's actually the title of the law. Uh, so recognizing that they want to encourage that ongoing investment and startup development and then judicial reform to your point has other kind of legal ramifications uh, that they don't want to impact the startup ecosystem uh, so it's interesting to hear you talk about just the the overall kind of tone within the ecosystem based on folks you've talked with and and how they've responded to those very serious changes so we'll we'll end there Brian thank you so much for the time talking through uh, just the the kind of growth of of your own career and and how that's um, kind of segued into the the broader Israeli ecosystem differences compared to some other countries and how you've been able to develop your your deal flow at TLV and how the the firm itself has really transformed itself into a a much bigger brand uh, than when you started there seven or eight years ago now. So thanks for the time. Thanks a lot, Kyle. This was this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.